Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch, where we consider dogs, watches, life in the field, and go wherever curiosity takes us. Today on The Dog Watch, we have a wide-ranging talk with Reed Bryant about the history of Orvis, types of bird dogs and their relative functions, conservation, and his love of fine mechanical objects like shotguns and watches. Along with getting a window on dogs and hunting from New England, and not missing the opportunity to ask Reed about his favorite gear, we also get to hear his perspectives on nature and hunting from many years of experience in the field. Before we start, our dog highlight today is the English Springer Spaniel, both a favorite gun dog and family dog. It's named after its ability to spring or flush game while hunting, although they also retrieve. They are predominantly black or liver-colored with white markings and have patches of feathered fur that is relatively long. Given that they like to play in the water and mud, they need regular grooming. Their personalities are often good-natured and peaceful, although they are not opposed to barking. Overall, they are excellent companions both at home and in the field. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts for the Dog Watch and tell a few friends about the podcast, as this helps us spread the word. And now, let's get on to the conversation with Reed Bryant. My guest today is Reed Bryant, who is the endorsed operations manager at Orvis, the host of the Orvis Hunting and Shooting podcast, and also a freelance writer. Reed, good morning and welcome to the Dog Watch. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to I'm excited to be on with you. So, how's it in Manchester this morning? <laughs> um, it's uh, it's weird. It's it's we're starting to feel like fall is on the way. It's a little gray. It's a little cool. It's, I actually put on a put on a jacket because it's um it's feeling it's feeling like a chilly morning to me anyway. So um you know I love fall and it's a beautiful time of year here, but it's always a little bit sad to see summer coming to a close and know that that a, a long winter is around the corner. Yeah. But uh but you know I love I love the seasons. I love New England and so it's um it's kind of a I know I always think of it as as uh, I guess a reflective time of year, sort of a I don't know, meditative time for me. So it's nice. It's good. Yeah, it's great. And you know, when someone from Orvis mentions putting on a, a jacket in the fall, I start wanting to ask questions about that. But first, I wanted to um, <laughs> get a sense of uh, you know, a lot of the listeners may or may not have been to Manchester. I've been there once, but what's it like there? How would you describe the place you're in? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I have spent most of my life in New England and a lot of my life in, in rural parts of New England and northern New England and Vermont specifically. Um, and I was not a fan of Manchester. Like I thought it was really not a I thought it was anomalous, like in the in the scope of other small communities in Vermont. I spent a lot of time in the rural northeastern part of the state. My wife's from north central Vermont, right in the Canadian border, smallest town up there. And um, I loved and still love the towns that are scattered around um, Vermont that are, I don't know how to describe them. They all just seem to have some little 
flair to them. Like there's usually a general store. There's usually some sort of funky hippie scene, like a co-op or something like that. There's little farms. There's usually a farmer's market here in Manchester historically, or what I knew of Manchester was that there was a, um, more of a commercial sector, I guess you could say it's a town. It's one of the only towns in Vermont, if not the only town that has like outlets, like, Mm. like, um, you know, bigger Mm -hmm. companies will have retail outlets here. Uh, and when I came here as a kid, I always just thought it was weird. I was kind of like, I don't, there's no there there. Like, where's the, <laughs> you know, where's the community? Where's kind of the hub? And what I've found since moving here um, and living here for about eight years is that it has actually a really rich and vibrant community kind of underneath that, mm-hmm. that more, um, I don't know, commercial or retail economy and then a tourist economy because there's some ski hills here too. But as I've gotten more integrated into the community here, um, it's really just been a wonderful, yeah, really just a special place to live. I've, I've really loved it. My wife has a small coffee roasting company and she, uh, she sells at the local farmer's market. We've had Mm -hmm. kids in school. I play soccer, um, with a bunch of, of folks locally and, and then working for Orvis, you know, you just find yourself integrating into these different, subsets of the community and and getting to know people in a way that um I don't know I I've just really loved it's like one of those things where I never go to the grocery store without seeing somebody I know I never you know I I go to the local general store and buy a cup of coffee and know all the people working there and they know me and know my family and I don't know I just I, it's a very nice small community the one other thing I'd say about about um Manchester specifically Manchester has a rich because Orvis has been there for so long. Orvis was started in in uh, eighteen fifty six um, as a tackle manufacturer, fly, uh, fishing tackle manufacturer, and fly um, fly retailer. There is a really long standing sporting culture here. So you know, there's there's some gun shops and some other. There have been over the years some other um, tackle dealers and and um, tackle shops and stuff like that. So there's you know you kind of also get that flavor of mm-hmm. the place, which is pretty cool. So you mentioned Orvis being there and starting a sort of fishing tackle. Um, mm-hmm. And why would Orvis have started there, right? Like nature wise, um, are there great places to fish? And then what's the um, then connection to hunting and shooting is uh, what, what would be the game that would be good up there? And when did that come okay. into things? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I should probably know the answer better than I do. So way back when Charles F. Orvis um, founded the company in 1856. And uh, honestly, I don't know why it was here. I mean, there's a confluence of great, um, what were historically great trout streams here, the Battenkill River, which flows into New York, the Meadowy River in which uh, the watershed I live, um, it's literally right at the bottom of the hill where I live, uh, are both great trout streams. And there's a bunch of smaller trout streams uh, uh, in within those watersheds, tributaries and whatnot. Um, but uh, I guess, whew, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know why that was, I don't know why the company came to be right there other than that there must have been a pretty rich fishing game resource at the time. And certainly Vermont, you know, back then in the, in the mid 1800s, um, had a, had a pretty vibrant, uh, um, game 
culture hunt culture hunting fishing culture orvis honestly was um you know there's there's this outdoor sporting you know element to it but it was really specifically a rod manufacturer and a a fly tying you know um or fly manufacturer if you will until 18 or until 1965 when the current ownership of the of the company the perkins family bought it um lee perkins actually i was just at a memorial for him he passed away um uh what a month or month or two ago um he was the patriarch of that family that bought the company in 1965 from a guy named ducky corcoran and um he had a long-standing passion for commitment to just um interest in uh bird hunting uh bird dogs fly fishing for sure just general outdoorsmanship and the sporting lifestyle and um uh, you know, being a naturalist and all this stuff. So he really bloomed the brand into a broader, um, have broader affiliation association with, uh, with hunting guns, dogs, um, as well as, you know, fishing travel, so on and so forth. So it's really, it's been a more, I would say since the sixties, Orvis has had more of a foothold in the hunting space and in the shooting space, um, and dogs, bird dogs specifically. I'm curious then how, you know, we've talked some before about your, you know, experiences. You've done a lot of really uh, interesting things in your life, not just yeah. working at Orvis, <laughs> right? Um, right? Yeah. I'm curious how you kind of how you came to be um, the host of this podcast. You know, I, I grew up in greater Boston um, in, a, in an environment that was very, I, I say suburban, but I think the my definition of suburban has sort of changed over time. I, you know, I grew up in a commuter, um, a fairly affluent town west of Boston, where where people commuted into the city typically to to work, and then had families in a in an area that there was, you know, there was horse farms and there was uh, land. Um, uh, like conservation land that you could get out and wander around on. And, uh, and so I grew up out there and had a pretty good access to, or had pretty ready access to the outdoors. Um, and my dad was always a really good naturalist and an interested naturalist. I would say for the, for what he lacked in, in being outside on a regular basis, he was passionate about the time he did get to spend outside. Um, so we did a lot of canoeing. We did a lot of fishing. Um, you know, we were always aware of like sort of the birds and the wild edibles and the things like that. My sister <laughs> and I, who's a little bit older. So, you know, there's always there was always kind of a focus on that, but it wasn't overt. And I knew from the time that I was little, little, and I don't know why, but I knew that I wanted to hunt birds. Um, Mm. and I, I had a fascination with, um, again, the the way I'm going to express this is going to sound is inaccurate in that, like I had a fascination with guns, but it wasn't about like, Oh, I want to, you know, I want to have like sort of shoot them up guns. Like I yeah. was fascinated by the, the aesthetic of them, the, the kind of machinery component of them, like how they worked and just the, the look of them and the wood and the metal. I, you know, I just had, there was something about all of that that really drew me. And, um, the thing about bird hunting for me, I had no real interest in killing things. I wasn't one of those kids that was always going out and like, I don't know, squashing frogs or whatever, I don't know, whatever kids do. I, you know, I, I was very sensitive about that stuff. The, the idea of something dying was, was troublesome to me. And, mm-hmm. and I was really conflicted about that and, and sensitive about that. But what I loved, um, was 
the idea of getting close to wild animals and really being able to look at them. So like, like I remember when I was little, we used to spend my dad's family's off from Maine. We used to spend a lot of time, um, in Maine and, uh, we would always stop at LLB and, and I loved being able to look at the taxidermy, like get really yeah. close <laughs> to a mounted, you know, deer, like a deer mount or a, right. or a mounted bird or a mounted duck and just like really look at them up close. And that to me was what I, what made me think about being a hunter, mm-hmm. um, if that makes any sense. And it, I, you know, I was little, so <laughs> the, it wasn't the most linear thought process. There, there was just part of me that, that knew that that would be a part of my experience one day. And as I grew older, um, and found that there were points of contact in my life, in my experience through my childhood, adolescence, and then certainly as I got to college, where I could um, draw on people who had that experience. You know, my dad had hunted a little bit as a kid, but I didn't really know people who hunted or people who owned guns. I guess really the next piece was going to college in rural Vermont in a community where hunting was very much a part of the social fabric and a part of what you did. It was a, a, a pretty non-typical college and it was very hands-on, um, almost more of like a commune than anything, but we got college credit. And, uh, um, and within that community, there were people that were willing to take me out and actually show me, you know, teach me how to right. teach me how to shoot, teach me where to find game birds, teach me to follow a dog, teach me about all these things. And that's where it really kind of came to be. So where that translated into what I do today but I worked in uh, worked in experiential education for a long time in a farm based uh, education program in central Massachusetts, and that gave me again access to land, access to the outdoors. I could have a dog there. I could work my dog before work, after work, sort of through the middle of the day. I could go out and shoot birds basically on the property, and then I was hunting deer and turkeys and other things too. So I could integrate hunting and fishing into my life in a way that had become really important to me. I could integrate a dog into my life in a way that it become really important to just my identity. It was what I wanted my life to look like and feel like. And then, um, through some freelance writing and other experiences, uh, at, at a point in my current education, I wanted to transition into the outdoor industry, found that Orvis had this position available, just very serendipitous. And, um, and, uh, I tricked them into hiring me and here I am. So, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's really, I feel incredibly grateful and just, just fortunate that things transpired the way they did. I could not have it. I could not have plotted a course to this destination other than that. I've always been fairly, um, I guess inflexible about my, uh, how would I say this? I've always been pretty inflexible about like, if there's something that's important to me or I see it as important that I do it, I, 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 I pursue it. And what I mean by that is like, like when I got my first bird dog, I remember thinking to myself like, okay, this means that I have to have jobs that enable me to have my dog nearby or that we can live in a place where it's where we can get out and go hunting a lot or we can get outside and we can run around a lot like it doesn't matter what else comes to pass like that has to be the priority because i'm committing to this dog and i'm not going to articulate this well but i but i i set up these rules for myself that were somewhat arbitrary but but forced me into a certain type of lifestyle and and also afforded me a certain type of lifestyle so you know there's a lot of years where money was (laughs) 
uh, we were broke, but I had, you know, a dog and I had the outdoors and I had, um, fortunately a wife that was very patient with me and, you know, healthy children, whatever else. So we, you know, it's, I've just been really lucky. A lot of the people listening to the podcast may have hunted before or, you know, used dogs for hunting as working dogs, but a lot of them won't have. And I'm curious Mm -hmm. when you said I would work my dog before work and come back and work my dog, maybe a little bit of background for people who aren't hunters or haven't used dogs before. Sure. How would you describe overall dog breeds? For example, I have two labs and I know that they've been used for hunting Yep. Um, not these particular ones, but I don't really understand where they fit into the, both the types of dogs overall that are used for hunting. And then also, what are the major functions of dogs in different kinds of hunting? But I think just a sure. primer for people might be helpful. So basically, dogs, you know, dogs have lived with humans for a long, long, long time and have been domesticized by humans for a long time. As as we've looked at dogs over time, there have been certain attributes of certain dogs that I think we've identified as being helpful to the communities of humans within which they live. With dogs, basically that came down for hunting anyway. Um, you know, we're talking about really talking about bird hunting because, you know, obviously dogs have been used to hunt anything from lions to foxes to whatever. Um, those, that's a, a bit of a different skill set, but it all right. really comes down to, um, to scenting ability, to ability to smell and to either track or locate game, specific game, um, more so than other game species because you don't want your dog there are dogs that will run predators like there are dogs hounds that are that are bred to track you know mountain lions or bears or whatever and and get them to um to typically it's to get them up into a tree or onto a bluff or a place they are cave or something where they can't get away um conversely with bird dogs uh there's really three there's really three primary um things, skills, I guess you could say, you want a a bird dog to be able to do. You want a bird dog to be able to um, locate game, so smell it, um, get it, enable you, the hunter, to get close enough to have a a shot at it, and then once it's shot, to be able to retrieve it and bring it back to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Because oftentimes, you know, a bird will fall somewhere where you, you know, it's in the water or in a thick area that you can't get to it. So, so as we get into, um, you know, again, getting away and we can talk a little more about hounds or, or other types of hunting for mammals specifically, but for birds, um, there are three primary types of, of gun dogs. There's okay. retrievers. So like your Labradors are predominantly their focus is, um, they can do some upland hunting, which we'll talk about in a second, but by and large, their job is to retrieve whatever is shot on land or, or, or in the water. So, um, a retriever has a certain set of skills that they learn. Some of that is, um, in scenting in, in being able to, to use their nose to find that fallen game and to bring it back to you. But it's really important that they can also take command so that you can kind of steer them. Um, you know, if you saw the game, if you marked the game down, if you shoot a duck and you see where it went, you want your dog to be able to use, some visual cues, take some visual cues, either to see a duck swimming or to take hand signals to go to where you saw the duck fall, so on and so right. forth. But they also need to be able to use their nose. They have to have um, good endurance, uh, typically good um, uh, you know, swimming sure. ability, and they need to be able to stay warm when swimming. Um, and they also need to be able to sit still because if they're running all around um, and you're, you know, 
trying to work a, a flock of geese that's circling overhead, if they see a dog running around, obviously they're not going to land right in front of you right. or get close to a place where you can shoot them. So that's retrievers. Um, and that basically that comprises like the big ones are Labradors, um, golden retrievers to some extent, Chesapeake Bay retrievers to some extent. Those are really the, the kind of big ones that, okay. that you, that have been again, refined over years, have those skills to, to be able to take, um, take training to be able to sit still, to stay warm, to be able to swim, to have soft mouths where they're not going to necessarily um, just chew up and thrash the the bird, making it inedible for you. So that's, right. again, kind of putting that compartment, that subset aside, that's retrievers. Then within the uplands, and by uplands I mean um, hunting and not wetland bird, not waterfowl. So you're hunting um, things like pheasants, grouse, woodcock, um, uh, what else? Uh, partridge, you know, stuff that you're going to find, whether it's in the woods, whether it's in the prairies, whether it's in the, um, uh, yeah, those are kind of the two sort of uplands, um, dry ground. Uh, you have two subsets of dogs. You have flushing dogs and then you have pointing dogs. And I'll talk about pointing dogs first. So pointing dogs are like, um, English pointers, English setters, um, German short haired pointers, Vishlas, Weimaraners, um, Britneys, American Britneys, um, French Britneys. Uh, so dogs that are basically what their skill is or what we've refined them to be able to do is to catch scent of a bird, not necessarily sight of a bird, but scent of a bird. And when they um, catch the scent of the bird, they freeze and they indicate by virtue of sort of where the wind is coming from and how they're catching that scent, they're indicating where that bird hmm. might be. Because typically, you know, as, as we all know, um, most game birds are not, when you encounter them in their natural environment, you can't see them. They're not just sort of out there right. flaunting their stuff. You know, typically they're, they're either camouflaged or they're tucked away in some degree of cover or something. So you can't really see them. So the, the pointing dog's job is to really use their nose to identify, okay, the presence of a bird, there's a bird nearby, there's a, a cone of scent that's hitting me, um, you know, from a, da- it's coming downwind and hitting me. And then me, the hunter is going to walk in, make the bird fly. So the bird's going to flush because I'm going to walk close to it. Um, once it's, it's flying, I'm going to try to shoot it. And if it falls optimally, a pointing dog is going to go retrieve it too, though I would say that by and large, that's less their that's less their focus. You can train a pointing dog to retrieve, but, and some will do it naturally, but it's, there are those that would sort of say like, it's, it's somewhat irrelevant. Cause you can have another dog, you can have your retriever with you at heel, or you can have a dog walking beside you that'll run pick up. So, so the pointing dogs real or the pointing dog will also do, it's called point dead, meaning they'll find the dead bird. They'll point it. They won't necessarily pick it up, but it'll <laughs> enable you to go and find it and pick it up and put it in your game bag. Yeah. So that's a pointy dog. There's a whole right. bunch of training that goes into that, but okay. really what it comes down to is they're, they're freezing when they sent a bird and letting you do the flushing, letting you make the bird take flight so Great. you can shoot it. The third category and the final category of, of gun dogs, um, is a, a flushing dog. And so this is like your Labradors. Some, a lot of Labradors are used for, for upland flushing. Um, spaniels, like I have English Spanish Spaniels, uh, Cocker Spaniels, English Cocker Spaniels typically. Um, what else do you see out there? There's a whole variety of smaller Spaniels. You know, there's, um, 
like Boykins and a whole mishmash of different spaniels. Mm-hmm. But by and large, these are um, these are dogs whose job it is is still to scent birds, but rather than to freeze upon scenting birds, they're going to be working closely enough to you, the hunter, in sort of a zigzaggy pattern of of working a piece of cover they're going to be zigging and zagging back and forth in front of you typically within you know call it 20 or 30 yards of you and when they get animate when they catch scent they're going to get animated and they're going to follow that scent quickly kind of kind of isolate the scent work up that scent as quickly as they can to the bird of course the bird at that point is going to want to get out of there because they're you know there's a predator on their tail they're going to fly you're going to shoot um there's different uh conventions i guess you could say for how you want a a flusher to respond when the bird flushes but the sort of the textbook is so the bird gets up the flushing dog sits or hops they wait you shoot the bird they mark the bird down you release them they go pick up the bird and they Hmm. bring it back to you so that's yeah that's the um it's a little bit uh so the, the, the thing there, and sort of as a, if I were to differentiate a little bit between pointers and flushers, is that in a, a good pointing dog that's real steady and knows how to work birds, you can put a good pointing dog out on the prairie and or in the you know bean fields or something for quail. If, if the bird isn't a running bird, like pheasants tend to run um, grouse or uh, woodcock or um, – partridge to some extent or bobwhite quail uh will will generally kind of sit tight so if you have a good dog that can work birds and doesn't push them too hard a good pointing dog you know you might have a dog go on point a quarter mile away and it takes you 15 minutes to get to the dog the dog should stay there with those birds not overly pressured but knowing where they are enabling you to get in and get a shot with a flushing dog you have to stay right behind the dog because the dog's just going. And like you can stop them. You can you can whistle them or hop them or call them in or put them at heel and make them stop so you can catch up. But by and large, they're just like a bunch of energy, a ball of energy right. kind of zipping around in front of you, kind of agitating whatever's there into flight. And so if you're not right there behind them in, in a position to get a shot off, you're you're never gonna <laughs> You're right. never going to kill a bird. <laughs> yeah, that that so. is that is super helpful because I have to admit I didn't really understand those distinctions in that way uh, as someone who hasn't done hunting and tried to figure out what kind of dog do I want. So, just briefly, what dogs do you have? Yeah, so I started with American Britneys. So, bit of a misnomer. The I guess it's the AKC um, changed the the den- denomination of um, what was once called the Britney Spaniel. Um, that definitely has uh, sort of a, a spaniel genetics um, to what's now called just an American Britney. It's a rare and unique dog in that it's a, a pointing dog. The French Britney and the American Britney are pointers, but they have that spaniel lineage, so they kind of share a lot of DNA with flushing dogs. And again, oh. as we're refining behaviors, it's just sort of a there was a divergence at some point where we, um someone sort of said oh this dog is doing this thing and it, let me just say this too before i go too deep in is that uh basically what the pointing instinct is or the pointing responses is just a it's a it's a suspended pounce right? right so it's sort of like okay i've identified that there's something right there i want to go jump on it and get it but I'm going to just like hold off for a second. So we, what we basically do is we 
encourage that response of like, okay, suspend your, <laughs> suspend right. your pounce long enough for us to get there. So, um, so anyway, I had, uh, Brittany's and I still have an old, old guy. My Doug Collins is downstairs. He's like 15 and a half. So, um, so I hunted them for, uh, the first part of my hunting career. American Brittany's had a couple of them. Um, and then what happened was for me, I love, a pointing, uh, like I love a pointing dog. I love the idea of seeing a dog on point. They're so just like, it's like suspended animation. They go from zipping all over to they, they just freeze. It's like a beautiful mm. um, moment of just right time stops, you know, and it's incredible. And when I, where I used to live um, and what I used to do, I hunted woodcock a lot and they're great. Um, woodcock are pretty forgiving for a pointing dog in that they don't, they sit tight. They don't run generally They're in a little bit, but they, um, they're kind of stinky. So dogs can, can smell them pretty well. And, uh, and I was for years and years and years, I like to think I've gotten a little better, but I was a really terrible game shot. So um, <laughs> being able to like do everything I could do to, to compose myself to get some shooting in was like, that was kind of optimal. And there's also just something, I think, um, from a, from an aesthetic standpoint, I just liked how they, I still love how an American Britain, orange and white American Brittany looks. I love how yeah. they, I love their size. They're small enough that you can pick them up and chuck them over a fence, but they're big enough that they don't feel like a little dog. Um, right. Yeah. There's just all sorts of, and the people that I admired, the hunters, that taught me a lot that I admired, um, were Brittany people. And so it just sort of had, it just resonated for me. Um, what happened, however, was that gruffed grouse where we live, rough grouse is the primary is kind of the king of the game birds. That's what we're all after. It's a native sure. native species. They're, they're inherently wild. They can't be reared in captivity or, or not in any real way. Um, so there, any rough grouse you encounter is a wild bird that's been on this landscape in some form or fashion for eons. So there's something about that to me that that's really quite special. And they're the birds that I love to hunt. They're delicious. They're beautiful. They're, they live in places I like, you know, all of the above. Sure. So there's something about those. those. That's kind of the, the, the species that I would say is my, you know, if you, if you are into superlatives, you know, it's like my favorite of the, of the upland birds. And, um, and the problem is that where we live, and this is not the case everywhere, but where we live, I can't tell if it's, if it's predation, if it's years of hunting, if it's what it is, but they're really skittish. Like you don't, you know, in different parts of the country, in different parts of the world, you'll find rough grouse that are pretty, you know, they call them fool hens or fool birds or whatever. And, and they're, they're just kind of stupid. Like they don't get, a, they'll just like stand there and you can walk up and whack them with a stick or they'll jump up onto a branch or whatever. Um, but where we are, they're really skittish. So the problem with that is that you, to get a dog that understands how to handle a very sensitive bird like that, you have to put that dog on those birds a lot of times. You just have to get a lot of contacts. It's like anything. It's how you learn to, um, I, I don't know, you know, get to a, to a, something on a balance beam. Like you have to just do it and mess up a number of times till you kind of figure out where you have to land your feet and your hands and everything else. So with that, you know, we also didn't, where I lived for many, many years and, and even now we don't have a ton of rough grouse, you know, there's a lot of um, reasons for that, but by and large, it, I wasn't in a position to get a dog that I could put on enough birds in the course of its lifetime to get it really, really good at consistently handling 
those birds, or I didn't feel that I could do that. And so we transitioned. Actually, my wife um, decided, I don't know how this all came to be. She met someone, actually, I do know. She met someone, a um, friend of ours who formerly was the commissioner of fishing game in uh, in Vermont, who was a big spaniel guy. And he took her out a few times and, and she got to know his dogs and fell in love with his dogs. And, um, and I had been thinking along the same lines that for me and the hunting I do and the likelihood of, uh, um, my pointing dogs ever being good enough to really be, be able to handle rough grouse. When I say handle, meaning point them from far enough away, sort of gently enough that I could get up there and get some shooting and actually hit anything. Um, th- that was what I was, what was happening instead is my dogs were just kind of ranging what we call bumping birds, meaning incidentally mm-hmm. fleshing birds that they were getting too close to. And I was in a position then like the, the kind of the, the rule of thumb with, with pointing dogs is if you, if they bump a bird or if they, they bust a bird or they incidentally flesh a bird, if you shoot it, you're kind of rewarding that behavior. Huh. So really in a mm-hmm. perfect world, if you have, a degree of like uh, self restraint that I don't have, <laughs> you know, you, you, you don't shoot birds that get bumped. Right. You only shoot the birds that are pointed that reward then reinforces that behavior. And therefore, you know, you kind of perpetuate the, the behavior you want to see in my case, a, I wasn't consistent enough killing the birds that were pointed and B there were so few birds period that I was like, I just want to shoot. So when it came down to it, um, what made more sense to me and where I landed was, um, having English Springer Spaniels, because if I could get them working close, basically they're bumping birds anyway. Um, you know, and they also will do a little bit of retrieving in the water. So I do some duck hunting and, you know, they could do light duty duck work and they could, um, yeah, it just felt like kind of the better, the better bet for me. So that's where I landed. That's what I have now. And I have a older dog that's, um, got a whole litany of health issues that I could go on about forever. And he doesn't really hunt anymore. I just don't, I worry too much about his ability to bounce back, um, from hunting. He, he, it's a long story, but then I have a young pup who's going into her first season this year. Um, so she'll be out there. Yeah. So, So, well, thank you. That is super helpful because I think regardless of where you come down on hunting, whether you hunt or not, seeing these breeds, which are so common, they mm-hmm. have, as you say, been refined to do mm-hmm. certain things. That that's yep. kind of how, how they were selected and whether it's a pet that you have and you don't intend to hunt, it's nice to know um, kind of what the is, is in the DNA, as you said. So yeah. And if, can I just interject really quick? I think the other thing, and I've worked a lot um, and written quite a bit with a bunch of very experienced dog trainers. I think one of the other things just to to note in that, and I, I, I'm always hesitant to tell anyone how to do or how to do anything or what to, you know, everyone constructs the world differently, right? Like, so, so I have my opinions, but I'm also pretty malleable in my opinions. Like you can tell me I'm being an idiot. I'll probably believe you. But, um, but the one thing I would say is that one of the burdens of that, um, that process of refinement of isolating those behaviors and refining them and encouraging them in our breeding is that when we put an animal in a context where they can't, um, 
do those things right. or they don't have an outlet. I worked on a farm for years outside of Boston. This woman had uh, was it was essentially a um, like a refuge, kind of a rescue type yep. situation where she might you know f- hear of an animal that was um, you know an old dairy cow that she took and just like put a bunch of money into into uh, keeping it healthy as long as she could and and giving it a great home and letting it kind of live out its life or a chicken you know that was a uh, you know kind of a meat, a commercial meat breed of chicken that she would just keep till forever and what you know what I noticed working there that I was always really troubled by was like the chickens were the most glaring example of this you know a meat bird is is genetically selected to grow quickly to put on weight and not to be able to like run around and be mobile and whatever it's just to put on meat and then be killed pretty young and when you do that whether it's you the individual or whether it's you sort of the system has has selected for those traits and those um, genetic responses and then you change the context and you you take that chicken where it would have been you know at whatever i forget i haven't raised chickens in a long time but at six months or five months or whatever of age it would be slaughtered and turned into to something for the freezer if you then give it all of the um all the support systems to live to be four years like Right. They're just not built for it, you know? And so, so there's almost like a responsibility there, I think, to either think about changing the system or just deciding, Hey, if we're going to eat chicken and we're going to raise these breeds of chicken, like what is the, you know, this becomes a great moral ethical question. It's like, is there, is there an ethical benefit? Is there a moral value in taking them past what they're you know they can't walk they have too much right. weight their legs can't support them they they get weird growths and like all this yeah. stuff so i guess my my the parallel that i'm trying to make with dogs is i buy all and you see people all the time that have sporting breeds or working breeds of dogs that don't don't necessarily herd sheep or don't necessarily right. hunt or whatever but you have to i do think I won't say you have to, because again, as I said, I, I teach his own and everyone constructs things different. I think that there is a responsibility as an animal owner, pet owner to identify that this is the reality. These are the traits that are bred into this dog and they don't have the choice to like turn that switch off, you know, right. so you have to give them some sort of engagement or some sort of, um, uh, you know, I say quote unquote work or some sort of attention yeah. that, that, um, lets them scratch that itch because otherwise you're you're kind of setting them up for frustration in a way that um is kind of tricky so anyway i apologize i just want to throw that in there we actually have been dealing with that with a little bit with lily who's uh three now you know Mm. she's a, a yellow lab and kind of tape you know tapering off the curve of growth and all that but has been needing more exercise so i've been taking her out to the off-leash park a lot more and she just runs and runs and runs and uh, chases the littler one around and you can see it's like that's what she needs Um, right that's what she's bred for and whatever so well i have a a a number of other things i wanted to ask you about a couple of um, maybe rapid fire questions sure first one can uh, can Dogs be good hunting dogs and good family dogs at the same time, meaning the same individual trained as a hunting dog and then be like just the warm, cuddly little couch, you know, couch dog or, or dog that's in your house. Like, does that work? 
Yeah, it's funny. I just wrote an article in conjunction oh, really? with, them, okay. with a, a very well-known dog trainer that, that we've talked about this extensively. Um, short answer is yes. However, it's important that you define what a pet or a house dog <laughs> is, right? Yeah. So like what I mean by that is if you want a dog that lays on the couch and just is like a couch potato and is super low energy and just cuddles and doesn't want anything um, – you're going to have a hunting – you may get that out of a sporting breed. It's going to be harder to get that out of a yep. sporting breed, but you may get that out of a sporting breed. But then you're going to have a dog that doesn't have a lot of drive in the field sure. because they don't – it's not like it's not like you can be, you know, an NFL running back and then go, like, lay on the couch and eat potato chips and eat ice right. cream for nine months of the year and then go back and be, like, a star yep. athlete, you know. So – so on, on the one hand, there's that you're going to, if you have a dog that's relatively calm or relatively just sort of placid in the, in the house, um, you're probably not going to get the same degree of drive and intensity in the field. Conversely, if you have a dog that's super driven in the field and you want them to be good in the house, you can, they can be good in the house. You just have to, you have to create what they're, what they're doing when they're in the field is they're just keying off of that physicality fitness and also just engagement of the mind you know right. they they're engaged in a task and they're all in it's like yeah. if you had someone who's just like so focused on what they're doing and so you can get them engaged in the house it's funny it's similar to what you were just saying about your dogs is like giving them exercises of course key but also it's not just exercise it's like mental psychological engagement so if you give them tasks to do and they can be totally arbitrary like like what we do a lot um i i shouldn't say we because i'm terrible about this but i should do a lot and i think people in the dog world do a lot is like a place board or a, or a place teaching your dog the command of place and saying like go sit on this mat so place mm -hmm. they go sit on the mat and make them stay there for 20 minutes because every moment of that time that they're on the mat, they're having to make that conscious choice of like, right. I am following this command. So their mind is engaged. If you give them no structure, they're, they're all of a sudden, um, you know, dogs, a pack animal, they're always looking for leadership. Right. And so if you don't give them leadership and you leave it up to them, it's not like a joy for them. They're like, they're not like, woohoo, no rules. I can do whatever I want. They're like, oh shoot, I have to figure out what to do now. And right. so if you give them clear instruction, it, it's, it lessens the burden and allows them to calm their mind. And that's when you're going to have a better house yeah. pet. So cool. If that answers the question. Absolutely. Um, a next one is very short, but it sounds kind of silly. Mm -hmm. If you're in the field with a gun and you've got these yep. dogs out there, is there risk for the dog getting shot? Oh yeah, hundred okay. percent. And it's it's terrifying. In fact, the fellow I just mentioned, um, uh, Pat Barry, the, our friend who was the commissioner of fishing game in Vermont, he had a littermate, um, a brother of of my dog Wiley, who's laying on the floor right next to me now, who was a great up and coming. Um, Brady was the dog's name. He was great hmm. up and coming young um, English Springer that was shot and killed oh, um, really? when he was probably hmm. two, two uh -huh. or three. Um, wow. It happens, and it doesn't have to happen. And this is the thing that I think is really. Um, the first dog I ever had, and I, I don't want to go, I know we're trying to do these questions quickly, so I won't go too, too in depth, but, um, but the, the thing to remember is that any dog, anytime a dog is not like on a leash, they, anytime you let a dog off a leash, 
there's a chance that they're not coming back. You right. know, it doesn't yep. matter whether it's on the street, in the yard, whatever. Things happen. But the problem is that when you're hunting with um, with dogs, there's a lot more factors at play. One, people get so fixated on the bird, they forget to see the dog, right? right? Birds are inherently what makes hunting kind of neat is that it's unpredictable. There's not right. a defined outcome. You don't always know where the bird's going to go, what it's going to do. You don't always necessarily know um, what the dog's going to do in response to the bird. You don't necessarily know, you know, if you're shooting into some thick cover, some trees, you don't know that the dog's not on the other side of it. You know, th- so there's so many variables. And so the general rule of thumb is that you only, um, you only shoot, at a bird when you can see blue sky behind it, which in the woods is impossible. You generally can't, but basically like head height or above, you never want to shoot down. You never want to shoot a bird on the ground. Um, you know, which is actually ironic because when you think about like rabbit hunting, you know, you're, you have beagles chasing a rabbit on the ground and you're shooting the rabbit ahead of the beagle. It's, which is frightening for me. I mean, that's hard. It's just counterintuitive. Um, so there are sort of protocols you can put into place. You should never, uh, you should never walk. I, I hate it when I see people walking with the muzzle of a, of a gun down, meaning like if the, if the gun is pointing at the ground, it shouldn't be because that's where the dogs are. Right. Right. So, so I like to see muzzles pointing at the sky. But yeah, it happens and it's horrible. I mean, it's it's horrible for the dog. It's horrible for the dog owner. It's horrible for the person that shoots the dog because sure. no one sets out to shoot a dog. And it 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 doesn't – it can be avoided. Yeah. There's really um, – mistakes happen. I understand. And I've taken shots that I wish I hadn't taken. There's take, I've taken – shots that were probably questionable, you know, in terms of their safety. I think about it all the time and I can't get those shots back. And I think that that's one of those things is like, I didn't have to pull the trigger any of those times. And so it's, it's one of those things like people do, people are, are fallible. They make mistakes, but the fact of the matter is you can set yourself up with processes, protocols, practices that make it virtually impossible for you to ever harm a dog while hunting so another question would be sort of shifting a little bit i don't yeah. think you i mentioned to you before that i'm pretty pretty interested in wax cotton right like that's a i love wax cotton <laughs> jackets and i actually yeah. had um interviewed um the people who uh, run new england reproofers who they reproof wax cotton etc and gotten into it and that's not to prime your answer to this question, okay. but I'm just curious. You work for Orvis, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a there's a lot of great gear and things. And I know a lot of us have those go to things, those that one or two things that we love to pick up, whether it's a mm-hmm. jacket or whatever that stays with us for a long time. I guess for you, and and curious what the, those things might be. Yeah, it's funny. You got me thinking talking about wax cotton because I love the look of wax cotton and I love like the idea and the I can't wear it. Like, I can't <laughs> wear it. It's just hard for me. But I, yeah. just from like a breathability standpoint, yeah. I get so clammy. But, uh, you know, the piece of gear that I think is is the well, I'll give you a couple. Um, for most of the hunting I do around here specifically, you know, you're working your way through really tangly, thorny, nasty stuff, typically relatively cool in the fall. Mm -hmm. Um, the two pieces of gear that I love, um, one is a pair of glass, it's actually Orvis product, um, that I was wearing long before I ever worked for Orvis. It was a a pair of gloves we call the Uplander gloves. And it's basically a, a very thin, um, 
Unlined pair of um, leather. I think they're deerskin now. Hmm. Though they may be, they may be. Sh- I think they're deerskin. Um, uh, leather gloves, just super thin, almost like a golf glove would be, but with a longer cuff. Um, hmm. Which gives you protection against thorns. They're incredibly durable, and I do not know. I've worn a lot of gloves over the years, and these ones just last, and it's huh. crazy. Um, what I usually do is I waterproof them. I take like a. a you know, like waterproofer that you put on your boots, like sure. like Nick Wax or um, uh, Mink Oil or something like that, and just right. waterproof them so they get a little slimy for a while, but it kind of soaks in and they're they're relatively waterproof. And uh, and they protect my hands when I'm pushing through blackberry cane or raspberry or multiflora rose or any of the thorny stuff that we have to go through. Um, my hands are always cold. Like I'm perpetually cold person. So like it, it doesn't do a ton for warmth, but it takes a little bit of the bite out of a, a cool cold kind of deal um yeah uh, you know uh, those gloves that again we've we've made for a long long time that i've worn for a long time are just like they're a a a piece of the kit that i just can't um get away from uh but the other piece that i love um talking about you know wax cotton being a relatively natural material not a not a not as synthetic a material um I love and have always loved a a heavy like um like worsted wool or boiled wool shirt like mm. just a button down shirt so you know uh, Orvis has made them over the years like Pendleton of course makes these uh Jocelyn Willen L.L. Bean Filson whoever but just like a heavy wool shirt I just find is like they last forever they don't burn like if you're ever around a campfire or if you're burning brush or whatever they don't burn so you know you don't get holes all over right them. um they're warm when wet they don't get super saturated with water either so they don't it's not like they get sodden i mean they get wet but they don't get like soaked and heavy um and they just like they they're like bomb proof you can push through <laughs> you know they get right. they they the thorns go into them but they don't they don't tear they just like last so uh Hmm. yeah the wool the wool shirt is a i love i love a wool shirt great well that's those are awesome things that i think people can check out and 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 consider or reconsider um as how useful they can be for outdoor activities Uh, one uh other question just sort of shifting gears a little bit we've touched on this but you're obviously a hunter and mm-hmm. you work for Orvis, which is hunting and fishing, et cetera. And you're also interested in the natural world and conservation and things like that. And I'm wondering, each one of us right now, we're in a critical time. We need to be thinking about these things about conservation. I'm curious how you think about the relationship between hunting and conservation and mm-hmm. how you make sense of that yourself. Yeah, it's a great question. And actually... Um, it's something I think a lot about because I think I'm actually very quite, quite lazy about a lot of my conservation, just sort of general and like climate. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, my daughter, I have two daughters and my older daughter, um, 16 and she's very active in, about educating herself about choices she can make choices. She can encourage others to make that, that, um, you know, and, and just sort of like policy and, and how you make global change happen. And for me, I think I've always been really um, bad at, and it's a bit of an excuse and I, I'm embarrassed almost to say it, but I, like I've not really been good at, at um, 
understanding or really taking taking action on or taking to heart kind of big abstract concepts that don't that I can't put my hands on if that makes sense. So I guess the reason that I say that is because one I have a friend who who's really um, really wonderful thoughtful guy um, Kurt Reinhardt he used to live in Vermont now he lives in Boulder brilliant. Brilliant guys, a PhD. Uh, I think he's a wildlife biologist, but now he works in business, and he he's just a, one of those guys that's too smart for his own good. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he always said, you know, the thing about hunting is it gives you a seat at the table, and I love that because what it you know it obviously aside from the the obvious implication of like food, you know, you know where your food is coming from. What he made, what his point was, was that you it's very hard to take action about or to have real passionate um sort of a passionate protective stewardship mindset if you don't have any relationship to this to the resource that you're a steward of and so ironically oddly the amount of time energy thought i give to Things like rough grouse in the places where they live, things like white-tailed deer in the places that they live, things like, you know, wood ducks on the places that they live. And all of the ways in which my life integrates with those species, um, both in a, both ought to be totally straight and somewhat like crass, like both in pursuit of those species for like hunting, but also just in wanting to make sure those species exist in the places where those species thrive exist for a variety of reasons for, you know, over the course of my year and my decade and my life. Like if I didn't have that vested interest, I wouldn't have a vested interest in their protection. So, I mean, this is a bit of a cop out that I think that hunters use a lot is like, Oh, the great, you know, it's like the, 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 I don't know if you listen to that Rhino documentary about the guy that went and mm-hmm. shot the, black rhino and Mm -hmm. i forget who did it um anyway like it's a i think it can be i think it can be used as a as a crutch for hunters at times but at the same time i just personally whether you again agree with me or not on this like for my own um understanding of like the northeast forest ecosystem when i have a vested interest in that ecosystem i have a vested interest in its protection and health and so when i have a vested interest in its protection and health, I need to, it heightens my curiosity about it. I need to learn about it. I want to ask questions about it. I want to be out in it. I want to recognize changes that are taking part, they're taking place rather in it um, over time. I recognize when geese are flying south earlier. I recognize when, um, uh, you know, the... What's a good example? Like when the, I recognize when the apples crop is bad, I recognize when um, the turkeys are gobbling earlier in the year than they usually do, you know, because yeah, because in part, because it's going to affect my turkey season, but also because it's, it's part of this bigger, broader identity. It's part of, it's part of me having a seat at the table, which I think, and, I, and I, you kind of got me because it's it's a subject I think a lot about. I think that for those that are listening that are involved in the hunting space or in the anything space, I mean, one of the things that I did talking to you yesterday on the phone 
you know, we share a lot of interests and those interests are like sort of scattered all over the the, yeah, the yeah, <laughs> spectrum of watches and education and blah, 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 you know. But the thing is that from my perspective, what we are tending away from, trending away from, and I don't know why this is happening, is we're, we're becoming specialists, right? Like everyone yeah. has to identify as like, I am this and and everything else is is secondary. So I'm a, you know, I don't, I don't even know, like software engineer. And that's like what I do. And that's how I'm known. And everything else doesn't matter. I'm a, I'm a bird hunter and everything else doesn't matter. I'm a, a, a watch collector. Nothing else matters. And I'm, you know, I'm so focused on, on that work, that study, that, that whatever it is, that identity that I think we've lost, um, I think we've lost the willingness to encourage people to be more rounded and more holistic. And what I love about being a hunter and what I try to think a lot about being a hunter is like, yeah, I'm, I'm like anyone in the career that I'm in. I want to be seen as like knowledgeable and, and skilled and whatever. But what I really want to be when I grow up, right, is a is a is a really good observer of the natural world. And right. so in October that may be mean that I'm really focused on on the flights of woodcock that are coming from you know the Canadian Maritimes and, and flying down through my region and then heading further south but I also want to know like when um I want to I want to be able to show you like oh this is wood sorrel You're, you can taste it it's going to taste like lemons and I want to know where the chanterelle mushrooms are and I want to know um what that bird call was and I want right. to know you know why the I, I don't know like when do the bears go to hibernate like I want to know all those things and and I don't want to know any of those independent of the others nor do I want to um so specialize on any one of those things that that I I lose the others and so so I guess to come back full circle to the to answer your question, having a seat at the table for me requires that for me, this is not for everyone, but for me, requires that I understand what it means to like remove something from the living landscape. And I also understand how precious it is to have that thing in the right. living landscape. And if I if I exclude one of those for me right now on this day, like the balance is off. Um, yep. I can't say that that'll be the case forever. I can't say that, that, you know, I won't change my mind. And, um, and it's also not as though, sorry, the last thing I'll say, I'm going long winded, but like, that's also not to say that like, when I think about hunting, like I'll just shoot everything because it's because I can you know I I don't there are I can't tell you why this is the case and I can't say that it's right or wrong but like I have no interest in ever shooting a bear I have no interest in shooting predators I have no interest in I, I just it just doesn't my my sort of emotional calculus doesn't that doesn't work for me but like um yeah I don't know that's a that's where yeah. I'm at Thanks for sharing those thoughts and like your perspective because we're e each of us is charged with figuring that out for ourselves. And then also mm -hmm. I think our generation too is coming to this a little bit later 
um, and also supporting, like you said, good for your daughter, right? And my kids too are, are leading the way more and supporting them and, and figuring this out a little more quickly. So thanks for that. I, I wanted to turn, and, and the last sort of question I have uh, might sort of open up a major can of worms. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but at risk of that, yeah, you talked about you know, your relationship with shotguns and, and I appreciate your sort of qualifying that, you know, it wasn't like pictures of AK 47s all around the house and that, that culture, it's, it's seeing it as this mechanical object. And uh-huh. I know also you're interested in watches, mechanical watches, et cetera, which those yeah. things are sort of similar. And I'm curious yeah. to sort of talk about that relationship and, and kind of what you love about both of those things, like seeing mechanical watches and mechanical, the mechanical nature of shotguns. Yeah. Um, it's a really great question. I think probably I, I, so my, I I think I've told you my, um, a lot of my, uh, uh, dad's side of the family are very much like engineer They're They've, they are engineers. They have engineering minds. I don't have that, but I, I have kind of glimmers of an appreciation for it. I guess you would say, I don't understand like engines. I don't understand, um, computers or technology at all but i i think in this sort of <laughs> more basic way i interpret simple machines or just just mechanical machines where like something under pressure hits something else and makes or makes a wheel turn or whatever like those things make sense to me do you remember sorry this is a total digression <laughs> but you and i are roughly the same age like i remember watching um i think it was it was either Sesame Street or, um, or like uh, the Electric Company or one of those PBS shows when I was a kid, and they had like Rube Goldberg machines. <laughs> Do you remember yeah, this? Yeah, totally. Yeah, possibly not, but it would be like a yeah. basketball goes through a hoop and down a track, and then it scoops a thing of ice cream and it becomes a root beer float. Like it was just these crazy, silly things. But like, I I thought that was so cool. I was like, okay, this is like all things that I can understand. I can, there's no leap that I have to make in my, in my mind to understand why that impacts that in this way. So that's, I think where my fascination with those, with those mechanical machines comes from, but it's, it's enhanced by the fact that these things are largely handmade. I mean, you look at a shotgun, it's this marriage of like natural materials and, and metal, you know, it's this, um, it's this highlighting of really gorgeous, exceptional pieces of black walnut, um, Turkish walnut, you know, figure, just beautiful figure to the wood. And I've always been a pretty avid woodworker, but there's just something aesthetically and that, that just sings to me. And I find it with, with shotguns and, and find rifles too, in a sense, like it's a, a similar, you know, similar but different um certainly with watches certain watches flyer rods and reels like are another thing that just speaks to me in that way uh again springs and drag that's that's strings and sprockets and but guns scare me you know (laughs) and like i have a lot of them and i shoot them all the time but they scare me and they should scare me and like i i'm attracted to them and i'm also very aware of the fact that they can hurt me and i'm 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 keenly aware, and this is an odd, I mean, I I don't have the money to spend on guns or watches that a lot of people do, but I mean, you can spend an exceptional amount of money on both those (laughs) things. Um, But like with guns, I'm also keenly aware of the fact that like they are dangerous in a way that makes me 
cognizant of the fact that at some point a gun could, I could have a relationship with a gun where all of a sudden I don't want to be around guns anymore, if that makes sense. So it's like, if you can imagine like the thing you love the most, if you're like, if you like love, I don't know, dogs more than anything, it's just like what makes your heart sing is dogs. But you you kind of live also in a keen awareness of the fact that, like, one day a dog could bite you and you would never want to be around a dog again. So it's this weird relationship, you know, and that I have with guns. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's I think it's about the marriage of materials. I think it's about the aesthetic. I think that it's it's probably somewhat uh, lends itself to the fact that they are capable of 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 real impact. There's just something about them that's always appealed to me. I guess the last question for you is. On watches, so what do you what do you wear in the field? What's your general collection like? And then I know you told me a story yesterday. That I'm going to ask you to sort of talk about about. Often we all have something about the one that got away or the one that might have gotten away. Oh, so I wanted man, to hear I about have that. Too um, many that got away. <laughs> no, it sounds um, like there's one though that you know. Yeah, I actually I'll, I'll tell you another. Well, yeah, we'll get there. So. I have um, I have three decent watches that I wear kind of around. The one I'm wearing right now is um, a Glycine Airman, kind of a kind of an interesting watch. Mine's a more modern one, and I really got it just because I do travel a lot for work, and I like to wear a watch, and I don't necessarily like to wear a watch that I'd be really nervous about getting stolen or lost or whatever. So right. um, it's pretty simple. But the the original Airmans had a um, 24 hour uh, face, so essentially the 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 hour hand did one revolution every 24 hours. So you were reading a, you know, a mechanical watch in, in military time essentially. And uh, so anyway, the one I have, as you can probably tell by virtue of the way I've just described that um, it, it, it wrote, it has a 24 hour face, but it rotates twice on the 24 hours. So you read it like a normal, you know, standard. Um, uh, so that's what I got. I have a Breitling dive watch that it was a gift from my father. I have a, um, a Gerard Perigo, uh, chrono, which is much dressier, but, um, I, the watch I would say I wear most in the field is probably that Breitling. It keeps great time. Um, is that a super ocean? Uh, it's a super ocean. It's one of the older super oceans. It's kind of the last, it's like the last version of the, the old generations. Uh, but it's, you know, I don't, Breitling's I go back and forth on Breitling's I'm amazed at the time that thing keeps it's always kept really 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 good time and I beat it up and I don't worry about it I'd had a bracelet on it when I got it I sold the bracelet in a moment of needing some cash <laughs> and uh you know and I I bought a I stupidly this is kind of funny I bought a um I bought a rubber bracelet but I wanted a or a rubber strap but I wanted a Breitling strap and I wanted a Breitling buckle on it and of course uh, folks listening have ever gone down that dumb road you know you spend 500 400 just for a tiny little tang buckle that says brightling on it. it's like good lord i could have you know done so i wear a lot of them with like nato straps too and stuff like that that's kind of where um like the airman right now just has a black um uh nylon nato strap on it but uh i love the idea of owning a dress watch i i the the gerard Pergo is that and i don't wear it that much just because i'm so it doesn't go well with my lifestyle, but I, it's beautiful and I love it and I love the brand. And so I kind of like keep holding on to it, um, regardless, but there was a show I watched years ago. It was this like naturalist show, you know, it's like a Nova thing where it's a guy 
go all over the world and look at animals and plants or whatever. And I remember watching, he was, he was at some, I think it was garter snakes that, you know, when garter snakes in the, I think it's in the spring when they mate and yep. they just, there's like swarms sure. of them in these colonies. And, uh, and he was like doing that and he was just picking up like fistfuls of garter snakes. And he had a really thrashed, um, two-tone, uh, Rolex date just. And I just remember thinking like, <laughs> I mean, this thing was beat and it was like snakes and like scratched and mud and whatever and i just remember thinking like that's so cool like that's what you should do with that watch it's just like the sort of the not 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 irony but it's like the lack of preciousness about it it's just like just wear it and enjoy it and have it with you um so when i think about the watch that that I would love to have and treat in that way. Um, it would be something like, uh, um, you know, I always love, I think the most beautiful, probably the most beautiful watch out there is uh, just aesthetically for me is the Rolex Mariner. I just think it's, it's a gorgeous watch, but I, it seems like everyone and their mother has one. So, yeah. you know, I always like to be a little bit different. So the watch that got away and the watch that I think I would wear in the field a lot um, which would kind of suit my lifestyle, suit my, sort of sense of myself would be a Rolex Explorer. And I like the big one, you know, the old 36 millimeter Explorer, um, I forget the reference number is a little small. Like I like that like 40 mil or so, um, case size. And so when they did the new Explorer in 39 millimeters, I started looking at them and didn't have the money. I was kind of looking at them pre-owned and pre-owned and pre-owned. And this is pre-COVID a few years ago. And I went into a shop, I was on a trip for work and I went into a really nice watch shop in, um, jewelry store in uh in Towson, Maryland. And they had a bunch of pre-owned watches, but they had, which is like the unicorn, they had uh the new Explorer, the most recent reference Explorer, um uh for sale, like in the in the case for Which is rare now. I mean no you can't do which that. doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. So like I was actually before we started the call, I was on there on um Bob's watches looking at at, at <laughs> Rolexes and, uh, and I, I think they had one that was like with box and papers for like 12,000 or something yeah. like that. So, you know, upwards of $10,000 and the retail on that watch is, um, is like 6,100 or something yeah. like that. And that's what it was at this store in Towson. And of course, you know, at the time I was like, I don't have sick. I can't, what am I going to say to my wife? If I like call home and say, <laughs> Oh, by the way, I just spent $6,000 that we definitely don't have on a watch for me, you know? So, um, that one, I, saddens me still because had I bought it, of course, like the value over the last three years has, has essentially doubled. And, uh, um, you know, and, and I don't know that Rolex is going to go backwards. So that's, that's a hard pill for me to swallow because as much as I'm unimpressed with Rolex, I'm really impressed with Rolex. Like I don't need to have a Rolex to show people that I have a Rolex, but I think that they're beautiful. And obviously they're, they're, um, kind of R and D and, and some of their stuff they do is really pretty phenomenal. And it is an iconic brand. And again, I'm not impressed with it as like a, a flashy showpiece, but I'm impressed with the fact that it's a really classy, elegant, old brand that's done a lot to, to maintain that. But the other one that got away, I'll just tell you this real quick. Um, there's a, so I don't know what your take on Panerai is. What do you think of Panerai? <laughs> I'm not a big fan. I, I like okay. the idea of Panerai. I like the fact yeah. that they exist and I like them for some people, but you know, I'm a relatively small guy, like um, not a big wrist and, and I don't know. It's, it's neat in the sense that it's um, aesthetically different, which I like, 
right? I, right. I like seeing different things. I mean, Rolex is neat, but you start seeing the everybody, uh, every brand well, yeah. has a very <laughs> yeah. similar take. So yeah. I like that about it. But like for me personally, that's just not my aesthetic. How right. about you? So, well, so here's the story. <laughs> so I, the first time I saw Panerai, I was in Greenfield, Massachusetts. We're at this restaurant called, uh, um, what was it called? I forget now. Anyway, it was this little like kind of brewery. And I saw a guy at a table wearing this watch and I was like, what? It? That's unlike anything I've ever <laughs> seen. And I went over to him. I was like, I got to ask you like what that watch is like, oh, this is a Panerai. And that, that was my introduction to Panerai. And I thought they were really cool looking. Um, but like you said, they're too big, you know, for yeah. me, I'm small too. Like I have a small wrist. I don't know how big it is, but it's small. So like anything over 40 millimeters gets pretty big looking right. on my wrist. Yeah. And, um, and Panerai for a while, and I think they may still, I don't know, but there's a, there, they made, and I don't know the Panerai line well enough to say this, but it was essentially like the Luminor, like the, the standard Panerai, you know, sort of the Panerai, like the Luminor, sort of that standard platform they did in like a 40 millimeter or 42 millimeter case. So it was a smaller one. Huh. And, um, I don't know if there was a specific name for that or if they do that generally or how that works, but regardless, there was a little watch shop in the town I grew up in that did a lot of repairs and I would go in there periodically because every now and again, they would have a, you know, a cons- um, like a consignment or sure. a state piece. And they had that watch and I remember it um, all these years later because it was $2,000, which even now like would be pretty good for that. Well, even yeah. then was pretty good for that watch. And, um, and that was when Panerai was pretty hot, like, you know, right. Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> everyone was wearing a Panerai. <laughs> and um, and uh, I remember thinking, like, this is a watch I should buy right now. And the it was a there was a state um, collection that a blonde guy had passed away in the town. His wife just wanted to get rid of him, and it was like she priced him really aggressively. And I I just should have bought it, and I didn't. And I think about that one a lot. But yeah. the uh, the Rolex, the I mean, the Panerai, like whatever, I could give her. Take it or leave it. Like it's it's a cool watch. I would have liked to have had it, and I think I would have gotten it for a good deal. But um, but the uh, the Rolex, yeah, the Rolex is a tough one. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It 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 teaches us something. And as far as those things in life that you pass by or you select, and often watches yeah. bring that right to the fore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like no, that. it's true. It's true. And I wonder. You know, I don't. When I think about Rolex in particular, and kind of what the future holds. I think the ascent that they've seen is a little bit dangerous just yeah. in terms of like, what is it going to do to the brand in terms of like the brand equity? And, and I think it's creating really weird relationships with authorized dealers and their customers. And just that manipulation of the, of the market just feels a little icky to me. And like, I just kind of want a straight deal. I'm, this is something I, I, I don't know. So, well, um, I mean, I tend to think too, like, I mean, they, they exist in an interesting space. They've really morphed and, and there's so many things about it that I like as far as the mechanical side, as far as the, you know, cost and, and all those things, I exclusivity that I'm not really wild about. Something that's great though, is that if that's for you, great, but there are actually so many amazing micro brands, Mm. you know, other brands that offer things of great quality for a lot, lot, lot less. Um, yeah. And people who, you know, make watches in the U.S., people who do different things and there's a lot to explore. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm really, I think that's a great part too, that if, you know, m- maybe that will also rein things in a little bit. Um, 
because it's just become sort of this, this, um, it's a, it's a, it's almost a different thing in kind in a way than, than some of the other watch collecting and things like that. So. Yeah. And I think too, like there's so many, you know, for me, I'm a big proponent, um, of like pre-owned everything. Like I, I don't generally buy things new and, uh, and for most watch brands, and I know that from a, from a collector's standpoint, this is not what you want to hear, but for just sort of the common, like for myself, someone who just wants to wear these things, um, you know, by and large, you can get some pretty great deals on lesser known brands, but exceptional quality watches. Yeah. Just yep. if you go looking in that secondhand market. Um, and, uh, and that's where I, that's kind of where I, tread <laughs> Most, <laughs> mostly yeah. so anyway well thank you so much for your time I, it's been a great pleasure to get to know you better and just talk and you know possibly to some way somehow it'd be to continued maybe in the field maybe another conversation but yeah. i really appreciate your time and and insights and i wish you the best out there in vermont and hope you have a great season and hope to talk to you soon yeah no i'd love that and i really appreciate the time and the insightful questions and i hope i did monopolize too much but uh but it's it's always fun when i can talk about things i care about so absolutely just get the opportunity. very good thanks so much anyway. for being on the dog watch read thank you too thanks again to reed for sharing his time and perspectives with us today you can hear more of him as the host of the Orvis Hunting and Shooting Podcast and find out more about his work at reedbryant.com. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. Until next time, this is Michael Canfield thanking you for joining us on The Dog Watch.